Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Let's go to our Bible today and let's go to Genesis chapter 10. And we're going to be looking at 13 through 32. And you're going to get into some very unusual things you probably maybe not have seen or you've actually read it, but you didn't know what it all means. And it starts producing a pattern or a prototype of what we need to talk about. And so what we're going to talk about today is how the past interprets the future and particularly our future. And what we're going to look at as a subtitle is the prototype for the dynastic or divine bureaucracy. And the table is set here in Genesis 10. And what we're talking about here is when I say the divine or dynastic bureaucracy, I'm talking about God's form of government and what he intends to do. And what you're going to see today a little bit is a glimpse of what we call the divine council or another term could be the angelic council that God has. And unfortunately, this subject matter has been ignored largely by the churches in America and the pastors in America because I guess either one, some people don't know it or are ignorant about it, or two, they do know it, but they don't want to get close to it because it seems to suggest polytheism, but it's not. You have to understand what the Hebrew terms mean to understand who and what are the divine counsel that God has around him. And unfortunately, this has been misinterpreted a lot of times. There's an actual occult called the Mormons who have taken this understanding of the divine counsel and extrapolated that there are multiple gods and these human beings who then eventually became a god are on the council. And that's a cult. And that's why a lot of people try to steer away from this because they don't want to get too close to, you know, Mormonism or whatnot. Well, you have to understand, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You just simply can't avoid the topic. You have to deal with the topic because it's all over the Old Testament and it lends itself into the New Testament. What you're going to have to understand is in the Old Testament, the term for angels is not like we use the common vernacular angel. And you know what an angel is, right? But the term in the Old Testament was Elohim. It's a plural. When it's referring to El Elyon, the most high God, the most high Elohim, it's referring to Yahweh. He's the most high. And then the lower branches under him are also called Elohims, plural. And the reason they're called that, reason why God is called the most high Elohim, is because it refers to the sphere in which these beings exist, the spiritual realm, and also refers to them being spirit beings with no physicality. So it's place and nature is what you're talking about. So when you refer to like Michael, the archangel, he is what we call an Elohim. Now, the Old Testament would use the term Elohim, which translates to God. And that's how they refer to angels as not God himself, but lower gods. And so you can see where people would try to steer away from this and avoid it because they don't want to use the word God, little g. But what did Jesus call Satan? The God of this world, the Elohim of this world. Not that he's ontologically like Yahweh, but that he's a spirit creature who indwells a spirit place. And what we find out about this spiritual realm is that God has a bureaucracy in the spiritual realm. 
with the, what we call angels. So I'll just use a common vernacular of angel, but it's really referring to Elohim. So you'll see in the Old Testament, it'll say, there is no other God except Yahweh. Well, it meant that he was the most high God. And it would always have a comparison. There's no other gods like him. And what it meant was didn't that these Elohims didn't exist. It meant that there's other lesser spirit creatures called angels, and they're not like El Elyon. He's on the top, if that makes sense. So you can see where the confusion comes in. You can see where Mormons could extrapolate that and take it out to saying there's multiple gods and whatnot. It's just not understanding the Hebrew. And so we're trying to understand this whole thing from a Hebraic understanding. Now, where does this go? So as you study this, you're like, what's the big deal? Okay, you know, what does this mean for me? It means this. God created one family already called Elohims or angels. Okay, there is a dynastic bureaucracy that helps God rule and reign the universe, okay? They're lesser Elohims, they're lesser angels, but they help rule and reign. They help carry out things that God wants to accomplish. Now, does God need them? No, but he chooses to have them. God sets the ends, and they are the free will creatures to make sure those ends get accomplished. So the angels are the means in which to get the ends accomplished that God wants. Okay, that's how you have to look at them. Okay, with that being said, that's the family he's created. Now, in a Middle Eastern concept, which all Middle Eastern kings got this concept from either orally from Adam and Eve and the patriarchs, or somehow they got this information. So what kings would do in the Middle East is they would have a large family and then put that family in ruling positions around them. Because that's basically the people you could trust, right? Is your your own family. And so they would install a large bureaucracy of their family. And then that family would rule that country. And that's how it went in the Middle East. That's still how it is today in some of those places like Jordan and whatnot, where you have a king, then you have a prince and whatnot. And it's still very much practiced today. But they got the idea from God. God wants to rule and reign. He has the right to do that. He creates a family to help him rule and reign. Not that he needs them, but he wants them to help rule and reign. So he's done that with the angels. Now that gets to what we're going to talk about. He also established a second family. And that second family is human beings. Now, as you recall, we have studied Genesis 2 and 3, where God is installing Adam and Eve as the king and queen of planet Earth. They are to help Yahweh oversee the planet. And then all their generations that come from them are also to rule and reign over the planet. We saw that in Genesis, and it's very clear in the dominion mandate God wants us to help rule this area, this territory called planet Earth. But as you know, something happened. Adam was usurped by Satan, and Satan usurped him, and Satan became the god or the ruler or the prince of this world. So what is God trying to do then? God is trying to reestablish his human family to be a dynastic bureaucracy for all eternity to create us as rulers, as we were intended to be, to partner in one sense with God. He's obviously the king, but we take the second and third levels of his 
dynastic government over human beings. That's his goal. That's his goal for you. Now, here's the deal. Even though you're a believer, it's not a guarantee that you will rule. He desires it for you. He wants you to have that as a priority of your life, as a goal of your life. But a lot of believers will not rule. And I'm going to talk about that in the application. So I just want to set the stage of what I'm talking about. Dynastic families that God wants to rule through. Jesus is the one who got our right to rule back by dying on the cross. And if you look at Revelation chapter 5, it is he who is making us kings and priests unto his God. Notice the word king, to be able to rule and reign. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But that sets the stage of what you're going to see with the table of 70 nations here. I'm going to go very quickly through the names because there's not a lot to be said about them. And so I'm going to run real quick through that. And then I want to get to the crux of the matter, which is this dynastic bureaucracy, okay? So let's start with verse 13. And this is all the 70 nations. And then, by the way, the the context is, this is what happened after the Tower of Babel when God dispersed the nations, okay? So that's what we're looking at. Verse 13, Mizram begot Ludim, Ananim, Lahibim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, and Kaluhim, these are all plurals, from whom came the Philistines and the Kaphtorim, okay? So I'm not going to get into it. A lot of this, these, this area was in Egypt, okay? In verse 15, Canaan begot Sidon, that's the Phoenicians. His firstborn, Heth, that's the Hittites. Verse 16, the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, these all were squatters in the land of Israel, if you recall, okay? Say with me. Verse 17, the Hivite, the Archite, the Sinai. The Sinai could be Asia. We call China Sino. That could be the derivative of where they came from. These are basically Canaanites, Assyria, Asia, Phoenicians. The Arvidite, the Zemurite, the Hamathite. Afterwards, the family of the Canaanites were dispersed. Let's jump to verse 19. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go towards Gerar, as far as Gaza. The Gaza Strip still exists, right? Then as you go towards Sodom and Gomorrah, Adama, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These were, notice this, this is a key thing to underline. These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, number one, according to the language, number two, in their lands, number three, and in their nations. It is the fourfold division of human beings that God wants. It's been repeated once last week when we saw the earlier text. It will be repeated three times. When God repeats something three times, he's putting the nail in the coffin basically by saying, I need it to be this way. I want the peoples of this earth to be divided properly by their language, by their lands, by their nations, and by their families. And what did I say last week about what they're trying to do? They're trying to reverse this. A one-world government, one-world people, one-world religion, right? One-world economy. And God God is not for that. We know it's predicted that it will happen, but we are to resist that. Let's move on, verse 21. And the children were born also to Shem. Now it starts on the other line. The father of the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder. That term Eber is maybe where the term Hebrew came from, possibly. We're not sure but it's possible that the word Hebrew comes from this patriarch, Eber. Anyway, verse 22, the sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. 
around interesting enough is where the Aramaic language came from. They were speaking Aramaic in Jesus's day. And so they had a lasting effect as far as their language in the Middle East. 23, the sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash, known as the land of potatoes, mashed potatoes. Did you catch it? All right. Anyway, a lot of these are from Arabia. Verse 24, Arphaxad begot Salah. Salah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. And I'll stop here and do a little investigation here. Peleg in Hebrew means division. It's really a palag, P-A-L-A-G. For in his days, the earth was divided. Okay? This could have two meanings, and I'm not sure which one they are. I'll give you both interpretations, and you can take a guess at what you think it is. But some theologians say, well, when the days of the earth were divided, has to refer to the Tower of Babel, when God confused the languages and everyone spread out divisionally. But a different word in Hebrew is parad for division. And so a lot of other theologians will say, hmm, because of that word is not being used, and palag is being used in the Hebrew, it might indicate that this refers to the continental shifts that happened after Noah's flood. And both sides make a good argument, whether it's the Tower of Babel and the languages, or it has to do with the continental shifts. What the creationists try to interpret that as is that it's possible after Noah's flood that there was major tectonic issues going on with the planet. Obviously, it makes sense. And because of these major shifts in the tectonics of the planet, that there, this is the theory, that there was one large landmass that God created. And then after Noah's flood, that landmass broke apart. Now, even secular scientists create the same theory, that there was one original landmass and then all the continents broke up. And you can kind of look on the globe and look at the different continents, and they seem to fit you can see kind of where they drifted apart. And especially with the rifts in the Earth's crust they know of, it seems to suggest that the continents were at least closer than they are today. But nonetheless, that's what the theory is, and that this division of the continents happened post-flood during the days of Peleg. And during the days of Peleg, that's why they named him that, because it happened during that time. Again, you have two theories, and you can take whatever one you like, you can do some investigation, and I'll leave that up to you. But both theories are well within the realm of orthodoxy. Anyway, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begot Alamadad, Selif, Gosh, It's hard to pronounce these words. Should be Bubba and all these other guys would be a lot easier, man. And Joe and Hazarmaveth. There we go. Jareth, uh, Hadoram. Uzal, Dikla, Al-Obel, Abimamel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, Jobab. All of these were the sons of Jachthan, and their dwelling place was from Misha, as you go towards Zephar, the mountains of the east. These were the sons of Shem. Notice again the repeat of this. According to the families, according to the languages, and their lands, and according to the nations. There it is. There's three times it's been repeated. Okay, now we get to where we need to drill down. Verse 32. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to the generations in their nations, and from these nations were divided on the earth after the flood. 
And what that statement means is this is the table of 70 nations that God started with after the Tower of Babel. And it's kind of doing a retro thing because we'll look at the Tower of Babel next week. But these table of nations is where everything came from and everything spread from these table of nations. And then we have obviously more nations, but everything today is from these 70 nations. Now, interesting enough, the nations that were scattered, these 70 nations, were done so as a penalty to them for what they had done with the Tower of Babel and getting into the worship of demons and following under the leader of Nimrod, who was an antichrist type. And because of that, their penalty is to be dispersed. This is the way God wants it, but it's a penalty. Now, I want you to keep that in mind as a penalty. It's an example of a Romans 1 penalty of giving over a nation to what it wants. Now, God's accomplishing his division, but it's an example of giving over, and I'll explain that in just a bit. The term 70 in Hebrew means a lot of things, and I I need to unpack that so you can understand why God creates 70 nations. 70 is usually a combination of a 7 and a 10. 7 is perfection, and obviously 10 talks about order. There's a specific order. So if you combine the two, what you, when you understand Hebrew, it has a, a message in the, in the numbering. And the message is perfect spiritual order carried out by power by means of judgment. That's the message behind 70. Let me repeat that. Perfect spiritual order carried out by power as a means of judgment. Okay, so basically what you can interpret 70 is the judgment of God fell upon these 70 nations. He dispersed them through his power by confusing the languages and he got the order he wants. This is what he desires, but there's a penalty aspect to it. And that's how you understand 70. Now, 70 will pop up all over the Bible. Have you noticed that? 70 is everywhere. Okay, so what, what does Moses do? He creates 70 elders to help him, right? The Sanhedrin is made up of 70. You keep seeing that number everywhere, okay? And by the time the disciples are sent out, it wasn't just the 12, it was 70 of them that were sent out among the Israelites during Jesus' ministry. Interesting enough, when you do 7 times 70, you get 490 years that Israel was in disobedience. And then prophetically, Daniel predicts another 70 times 7, another 490 years, prophetic years. If you add those both up, you get the entire history of Israel by the 70 times 7. That is their whole history. What we're waiting now is we're waiting for the last week, the last seven years of the 490 prophetic years. That's Israel's history right there in a nutshell, all derived by the 70s. Interesting enough, how many years did they spend in Babylon? 70, right? And so this number keeps popping up. Well, anyway... It pops up here for the first time, and this is what we want to learn from this. What is this idea of giving the nations over in this sense? Yes, he wanted this, but it was a penalty aspect to it. Well, I want you to read this passage, and this is in Deuteronomy 32.8. And this is where we start drilling down a little bit. Now, what I have done is I am actually quoting from the, the Septuagint and Qumran scrolls. And this is uh, 4Q, Deuteronomy, of Qumran. Why am I quoting from that? Because Qumran 
Qumran predated the Masoretic text by at least about 1,000 to 800 years, okay? The Masoretic text in your Bible is what your Bible is basically, the Old Testament is based on the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text was compiled between 700 and 900 A.D., okay? 700 and 900 A.D., the Masoretic text. The, the, the idea of the Masoretic text is I will use the Masoretic text as long as I don't have any competing issues with older texts. So you always want to use the Masoretic text because that's where the majority of the copies come from. But when there's other things that show something different, I will tend to fall towards the older manuscripts, which were found in the Dead Sea and the Septuagint. Now, I'm getting real technical, but you have to understand this. The Septuagint was written in around 300 B.C., not A.D., 300 B.C. It's the Greek interpretation of the Hebrew in 300 B.C. The Qumran scrolls date to about 300 to 200, maybe even 100 B.C. So they pre the, the Septuagint and the, and the Qumran scrolls predate everything we had by at least 900 years, let's give or take, okay? And guess what they say? And I know what your Bibles say, because your Bible is based on the Masoretic text, but I believe the Septuagint and Qumran are more accurate, because they're older in this sense. And this is what the Qumran society and the, the translators of the Septuagint said. When the Most High, El Elyon, divided the nations, talking about chapter 10, when he separated the sons of Adam... He set the bounds of the nations according to the number of the angels of God, the Bene Ha Elohim. Your translation says, according to Israel, the sons of Israel. And I believe that's a mistranslation because the older scrolls say sons are of God, the Bene Ha Elohim. Now, why is this significant? Well, think about this. When this actually happened, when God caused the Tower of Babel dispersion, did Israel exist? Israel didn't exist. So just from a technical standpoint of the translations, but just on a common sense level, how could he divide the nations according to the sons of Israel when Israel doesn't exist? You can't. So this is why I lean towards the scholarship of saying, no, the correct translation should be the Benaha Elohim. The oldest transcripts do that, and common sense dictates as well, since Israel didn't exist. I could be wrong. There's debate, but this is where, there's more evidence behind this. Now, what do you mean he, he divided the nations according to the Benaha Elohim? I've seen that term before. And where did I see that term first off? Genesis chapter 6, when the Banacha Elohim came upon the daughters of men and created Nephilim, created giants. So you had a, these sons of God, these fallen sons of God come upon women, impregnate them, and create the monstrosities that we studied. Now it's saying, as a penalty phase, God has now created 70 nations according to the Banaha Elohim. How does that function into a Romans 1? Simple. What does Romans 1 say? If you like your sin so much, and you love it so much, and you won't give it up, I'm paraphrasing, I'll just give you over to it. You want it, you got it. 
is basically what Paul was saying in Romans 1. And people who won't stop doing what they're doing, they won't repent. God finally just lifts the boundaries and said, go for it. You want to have drugs? Go for it, man. You want to become an alcoholic? Go for it. Just, he just gives you over. You love money? Go for it. It's the worst penalty anyone could possibly sustain is to be given over to their sin. You don't want to be given over to your sin. That sin will entrap you and eventually destroy you. So if you see this, the penalty then is this. You guys want to worship demons, which they were doing at the Tower of Babel. You guys want to worship demons. You want to worship the stars. You want to have the gateway into heaven so you can cross over and they can cross over at the top of these, these, these ziggurats. I'll give you over to them. And what I will do, I will start a new nation who has their own territory that I will pick out for them and I will create a new nation holy unto me. You know who that nation is, don't you? Israel. So he gives these nations who are worshiping Nimrod and the demons over to be ran by demons, high-ranking demons, very high. The Banacha Elohim are the highest ranks. And this is why when you see these nations spread out, none of them became godly. It had to start with Israel. They were given over. Have you ever studied the, the people groups that came over from the Bering Strait when there was a land bridge into the Americas and you saw the American Indians and the South American Indians and the Central American Indians? They came from this spreading out. But what did they bring with them? Demonic worship. Hardcore. Pulling out people's hearts. Human sacrifices. Worshipping these feathered reptiles. Hardcore. And you go any part of the world where this migration happened from the Tower of Babel, and you will find hardcore demonic activity. How about the people who settled into Africa? Hardcore demonic activity in Africa. Same thing in Asia. Same thing in Europe. Think about the Nortsmen. And they had Valhalla and all these Viking goddesses and gods. It just turned into paganism. Look about the, look at the Celtics and what they did, the Druids and things of that nature. So when these, these people groups spread out, they didn't continue to worship Yahweh. They turned their back on them. And as a penalty of that, he says, you want to, you want to worship these flunkies? You'll have them and I will put them over your nations and they will wreak havoc over you. Now you see, this is not God letting demons have their way, it's a penalty for the people who worship demons. And you'll see the same thing in the book of Revelation. They will, they will be attacked by the very thing they're worshiping, and they, after the attack, they continue to worship them. And so basically what you're going to see is the, the embryonic seed here of why God has to start a new nation among the 70 nations. And that new nation will be a what? A light to the Gentiles who have lost their way. And through Shem's uh, lineage, Abraham will emerge to be the new nation that we know of Israel. Okay. Notice that Israel, once they get established, they start having problems with worshiping the Elohim as well. Look at this text right here. Deuteronomy 32, 17. For they, the Israelites, sacrificed 
to demons or shadim, not God, Eloah, to gods, there's a the word Elohim, whom they had not known. Notice that De- uh, Deuteronomy, which is written by Moses, is linking shadim to Elohim. And that's obviously from a Jewish perspective, the shadim demons would be connected to a spirit creature and that's thus they would be, they would be called Elohims. And even so, the Israelites would start worshiping demons. And they had a problem too. They called them gods like Baal or Asherah or whatever, but they were nothing more than demons. Paul mentions that to the Corinth church. And so this starts the problem. And this is part of a giving away. Now, here's an interesting thing. You say, well, are there demons assigned to locales? Is that assignment from God or from Satan? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I do know this. There are demons assigned to locales. Who assigns them? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe Satan does. Maybe God does. I'm not sure. But I do know they're there. Look at Daniel chapter 10 with me. Then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. This is Gabriel talking to Daniel, okay? That Gabriel was sent to talk to Daniel and give him the prophecy of Daniel 9 through 12. And I have come because of your words. But notice this, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. Who is that? That's not a human being. Who could withhold Gabriel from getting a message to Daniel? It's a high-ranking Benaha Elohim who is called a prince. Since he's a prince, means he's over that territory. He is governing that area. And Michael is going to come in to invade that area and, and break through the, the spiritual boundaries to talk to Daniel, who is in Persia or Babylon at that time. And so the minute this prince of Persia realizes Gabriel's coming, he stops him. And he stops him for 21 days. And Gabriel can't get through, which indicates what? That the prince of Persia is stronger than Gabriel. So apparently this prince of Persia is a more high-ranked angel because he has more power. And behold, Michael, which is the prince of Israel, one of the chief princes came to me, came to help me, for I had not been left alone there with the king of Persia, for I had been left alone there. So he's finding them. So Michael has to come in, and the two have to overpower this one Benaha Elohim, this one spirit creature who's fallen, because he's, he's more powerful than Gabriel. So Michael has to jump in. Michael, though, is assigned to Israel. That's, that's Israel's prince who over, oversees them. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. And it's going to give the whole prophecy to Daniel. But the vision refers to many days yet to come. Then he said, and now I must return to fight the prince of Persia. He's so going to go back to fight him. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. Who is that? Another human? No. It's another high-ranking Banaha Elohim that's fallen, but is over Greece. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Isn't that interesting? There's no other angels that have the kind of power that Michael has and Gabriel has to help them. So it's Michael and Gabriel that have to fight against these ranks of what's called a prince. So what we're talking about prince is that is related to 
the Banacha Elohim, a very high-ranking order that's extremely powerful, and rules over territories. Prince of Greece, Prince of Persia. Now let's bring it back to today. Are there high-ranking Banacha Elohim over countries? Yes, there has to be, because this is the precedent right here. And according to the Table of Seventy Nations, all of them had a Banacha Elohim over them. Now, it's not that the Banaha Elohim is going to rule wisely. What is he going to do? He's going to use the other subordinate Banaha Elohims under him, other angelic orders, fallen angelic, to do his bidding to corrupt the country, to make them fully demonized. That's what their job is to do. Here's my question. You think this has happened to the United States? It's unmistakable. And maybe God has his own angels over territories as well. But as a Romans 1 thing uh, approach, if you look at this, if a nation decides to worship the Banaha Elohim, the fallen angels, God, as Romans 1 says, will give them over to it. You want, you, you like what this guy's producing? Fine. You can have him. You can worship him all you want. He will take you straight to hell. But that's what you want? You got it. I believe firmly what I am seeing now in our culture is people have now jettisoned God out of the culture and they are worshiping demons. And I don't know the name of the high-ranking Banaha Elohim over, over the United States, but there is something going on spiritually in the United States that I can't explain other than spiritual. The stuff we are seeing now has never been seen in our country. Never. We've went past homosexual marriage. Completely past it. We're on the verge of pedophilia now. We're already killing babies out of the womb. You got, you saw the prophecy update. People are selling their babies. Planned Parenthood is selling body parts. If that is not demonic, I don't know what is. And so now you're seeing even in our country, a country that has been given over. Fine. You want them? You can have them. And they will demonize you and destroy you. Scary, isn't it? But think about this. This came early on in Genesis. It's been a theme all throughout the Bible. It will continue into the tribulation of this worship of demons, of these worship of the Banaha Elohims. Obviously, angels, fallen angels. But then this plays into you and I. And this were the application I want to go with. You understand that structure? There's, Satan has a dynastic bureaucracy. God has a dynastic bureaucracy. But there's one more to come. And it's you and I. Satan doesn't like it. In fact, our bureaucracy under Messiah will be the highest bureaucracy. The angels will serve us. Their bureaucracy will serve us. We're made lower than the angels. We'll be exalted above the angels one day. Let's, let's talk about that now. So now you understand the divine bureaucracy from the angelic standpoint. Now I want you to understand it from the human standpoint. Matthew 6.10 says this. In the prayer that the Lord taught the disciples, you know it very well. Your kingdom come, your will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. The prayer in Matthew 6, we call it the Lord's Prayer, that little verse right there is talking about the messianic kingdom. 
your kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Bring your rule to the earth. He says, right now, God's in charge of everything. He has the right to rule, but he's allowing the freedom of people to not obey him and to rebel against him. And that's what's happening. So we don't see that rulership now in effect, but we will when Jesus comes. And he will put the whole world under God's rule. We look forward to that day. But here's the thing you must understand. He wants you and I to play a part in that bureaucracy. He wants you and I to be a ruler, a co-heir and a co-ruler with him. One of the promises he makes to the churches in Revelation, that he promises you will rule and sit on my throne as I sat on my father's throne. Interesting. Where did Jesus get that concept? Because he, he talks about ruling with him even in the Gospels. It came from Genesis, what we just studied. It came from Genesis 2 and 3, that God created us to rule and reign with him in this dynastic family that he's created. Now, you might say, well, I don't know about that. Well, look what 2 Timothy says, chapter 2. This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If, look at the conditional, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now, remember, this is talking to believers. If we endure, in that sense, he's talking about hardships and trials. If you persevere through your hardships and trials and fulfill your goal that God has laid out for you in your life, you will rule. But if you decide to take a hiatus, decide to sit on the sidelines, decide to not get involved in this fight that we're in, you will deny him by doing that. By sitting on the sidelines, you're actually denying him. This is not a reference to unbelievers. The idea is that he will deny us. Deny what? I will deny you the right to rule in my kingdom. That's what he's saying. You want to rule? Endure. You don't want to rule, and you want to be cleaning toilets for the rest of your eternity then fine, you can deny me and live a comfortable life, but I will deny you rulership in the next life. That's what it's really saying. And it's all over the, the New Testament about this. Now, with that being said, what do you mean? Well, now we start applying it to ourselves. The goal of our Christian life is not only to be conformed to the image of Christ, but why are we being conformed to the image of Christ? so that we may rule with him. That's one of the goals in life. Believe it or not, all the passages out there about rewards, this idea of ruling should be our ambition, our goal, our hope, and our priority in this life. What do you mean? Well, there's a lot of Christians that want to act pious. They want to act spiritual. And they'll say things like this. Well, you know, I'm just going to be glad if I make it to heaven. I just don't care if I'm sweeping the streets. I just, I'm just glad I'm there. And that's really not my priority to rule and reign. And, you know, I'm not so geared up for that reward. I, I'm just going to be happy to be there. When you hear that, it might sound pious to you. It might sound like humility, but I'm going to tell you what it is. 
It's false humility and it's irresponsible. That's what that mentality is. As a child, if God is telling you and I, I want you to make ruling your priority, then I can't get any higher than God. People will say, well, that just seems too crass that I would serve Christ for rewards. I'm sorry. I didn't make the rules up. He did. I'm just telling you what he said. And he says, that must be your priority to rule and reign with me. And if it's not, then your priorities are messed up. You're not on task. You don't have the right goals. And my friends, as you know, if you get on the wrong goals and the wrong priorities, you will be led astray. You'll be doing things that are weird and funky and it doesn't have anything to do with Christianity, but you'll think it is. You'll baptize and spiritualize what you're doing and you won't even be on the right task. And there's a lot of Christians doing that. They're not even on point. And that's what rulership does. It puts you right on point. It puts your priorities there. Now, I want to show you on your handout. I gave you a handout, right? Today. On the one side, I want you to see the breakdown of the different boxes. So if you use the box one, I want you to look at the box. Now, what you're going to see is what the, the scriptures teach is that when Messiah comes, he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years, and this blends into eternity. So this will be his government for all eternity, okay? It starts on earth, and then it goes on for all eternity. Notice that there's two branches in the human dynastic bureaucracy. The one line on the, on the right side here is the Jewish branch of government. If you're a Jew and you're a believer in the Messiah, this will be the branch of government that you occupy, okay? Uh, obviously, glorified David will be one of the princes of Israel. You have the 12 apostles who were over the 12 tribes. You have glorified princes, glorified judges and counselors. Then you'll have mortal Israel during the millennial reign that they will rule over. And then you'll have also mortal Gentiles who Israel will will rule over during the messianic reign. That's that side. If you're a Gentile like me, then we're on the Gentile branch of government. And this is where you and I will fit in. The Gentile branch of government made up the church and the tribulation saints. Okay? Then you have glorified rulers, and that's where you want to be. That's where you want to be. Then you have glorified non-rulers. Guess who those are? Those who didn't earn the right to rule. They're believers. They made it but they don't rule. And then you have mortal Gentiles that will be in the Messianic kingdom. Now, eventually, in this Messianic kingdom merges into eternity, and so you won't have any mortals anymore. But your status as a ruler is for eternity. That should Let that sink in. Whatever you gain here will be set for all eternity as far as rewards. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about rewards. You will be set in that position the rest of eternity. Now you can see how it prioritizes things. Do you really want to be sweeping the streets and cleaning toilets, so to speak, for all eternity? I don't. So guess what? I'll clean the toilets now. I'll clean the toilets now. Now what I mean by that is I get in the trenches and I do the hard work what it needs to be done. Because I don't want to do the manual labor in the kingdom. I want to be a ruler. I want to be a king over something or a territory. And so should you. That's not out of bounds. Now, question then, how do you do it? Well, on the other side of your paper, I have given you 14 items to look through. Now, I'm just going to peruse through them real quickly, and you can go home and study all the passages and get in more in depth. 
but I wanted to give you at least these 14 that indicate how you get to rule. Let's start with number one. The believer that stays faithful and serves Messiah through hardships, suffering, and persecutions. They proceed in God's plan or call or assignment for their life while enduring trials. They don't give up. So many Christians give up when they get a trial. That kind of Christian that gives up doesn't rule. Number two, the believer who uses his or her unique giftedness and abilities faithful to serve the Messiah. So what is your gift that God has given you? You have to employ them. You can't just sit back and let them rot inside of you. You have to get them out there and work them. Three, the believer who serves wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedness uh, and faithfulness in service results in maximum rulership. Do you know that there are Christians that only serve Christ with half their heart? They don't serve him wholeheartedly. Half their foot's in the world and half their foot's in with Christ. They don't get the rule. Four, the believer who risks himself or herself and their gifts. What do you mean? Risking personal failure, embarrassment, targets from the enemy, expenditure of time and energy, sacrificing their free time to serve Messiah. You got to put it out there at some point in time. You got to risk something. Folks, your service to the Lord must cost you something. It can't be by convenience. If you serve the Lord by your convenience, you will never get rulership. You have to sacrifice. Maybe it's time, money, energy, study. I don't know. But you have to sacrifice something in order to rule. Five, the believer who is meek. It is an attitude not of insisting on one's own rights. They're always ready to waive their privileges in the interest of others. The meek person is willing to wait for God's time and to claim what is rightfully his or hers. Six, a believer who confesses Christ publicly rather than denying him by being silent. They are abiding in the Messiah. Seven, the believer who has left people or things that would trip them up from serving the Messiah, such as money, possessions, inheritance, relationships. Eight, the believer who stays faithful to the word of God and guards against doctrinal corruption. The believer doesn't allow false teachings into his or her belief system, and he guards against apostasy. Nine, the believer who refuses to be spiritually blinded by affluence and become worldly which can cause the person to become useless in the service of the Messiah. Ten, the believer who is watchful for the Lord's return. Watchful means being providing spiritual nourishment to unbelievers and believers. Those who are watchful will be rewarded with rulership. Eleven, the believer masters his sin nature. Here the emphasis is on self-control. Twelve, the believer who lives righteously in this world while they look forward to, the, to Christ's return. They are, they are those who are not captivated by this world, but hunger and thirst after righteousness. These are the believers who love prophecy, understand it, and live in the light of the last days and the imminent return of the Messiah. Thirteen, the believer who, who leads others to Christ or demonstrates faithfulness by influencing others towards righteousness. And fourteen, the believer who fulfills their calling and assignment and finishes the work God gave them to do. This, guys, is not out of the realm of any of us. All of us sitting here can do this. And if you do that, if you serve Christ faithfully, you will rule. Let me end on this story, and this comes from the Bible. And it's a misunderstanding from the disciples about ruling and reigning. You might remember this story very well. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. Hmm, I wonder what she's up to. Now, let me give you the context on this story. Jesus has just told them in their preceding passages in this text that he's going to be betrayed by his friends. He's going to be uh, accused falsely. They're going to beat him. They're going to 
crucify him. He's going to be, be put to public shame. He just told him that, okay? So imagine sitting around the table, and he's saying, I'm going to be crucified. They're going to whip me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to scourge me. They're going to call me all kinds of names. And then the mom pops off like this. It's like she just changed gears. It's weird. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, this is after he said all this, approached him with her sons. She's doing a little nepotism. You'll see this real quick. She knelt down to ask him for something. And and this is Jesus saying, what do you want? He asked her, promise. She wants him to make a promise to her. She said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. Wow, mom, pretty bold. He just told you he's going to die. And the first thing that comes out of your mouth, let my two sons rule. And by the way, there's some nepotism here because they're cousins of Jesus. James and John are his cousins. And she's working the system, trying to get in, saying, make my boys co-rulers with you. Watch Jesus' response. But Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? He just told her what the cup was, right? And then they pipe off, we are able. They said to him, they don't, they don't know what they're saying. He told them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and left is not mine to give. Instead, it belongs to those for whom it has been prepared by my father. So what Jesus was saying is, you don't know what you're asking. They do understand the concept of ruling and reigning. So that was well embedded in them. But he says, you don't know what you're asking, basically. That's something my father's going to decide. But you boys have to live a full life. And then that will be determined in the judgment at the Bema seat. What's the message for you and I? Rulership is not out of the realm of anyone in this room. And you, if you strived for that priority in your life, you will be part of that bureaucracy for all eternity. That decision will be made, though, when you finish your life. And what does that entail? It means that you must endure this life until he calls us home. You must go through the trials and deal with them. And an interesting thing I was reading this week about, they found the Roman coin, and I think it's apropos for what we're studying They found an old Roman coin dating back to the time of Jesus. And this Roman coin had an ox on it. Very interesting. And this ox, you can see it portrayed, it was facing two things. And the one thing it was facing was an altar, and the other thing it was facing was a plow. An altar to be sacrificed on and a plow to do work. Right? It had two options in front of this this ox. Do you know what the inscription said? It said, ready for either. Ready for either one. Are you ready to be sacrificed on the altar? Are you ready to plow for the rest of your life, as hard as that is, until he calls us home? Either way, you must be ready for both if you're going to rule. Let's pray. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times 
and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.